And good morning. We are continuing in our study through the book of Daniel, and we're arriving at really what I think could be one of my favorite chapters in Daniel. It's one of the stories, one of the major two stories that we tend to think of, those of us who grew up hearing some of these stories in Sunday school. <laughs> but it's a pretty incredible situation, real events that happened in real history. And because there's so much corroborative evidence about the different kings, there was more than one Nebuchadnezzar, as I mentioned on the very first installment of this series. And then there are other things that happen in history, some of which were actually identified through archaeology in Babylonian history. So we're starting to see some things that were transpiring in the lives of people exiled from Israel up into what became known as Babylon. And it was then Persia, and there were other parts of that Levant part of the Middle East when we can see things morphing and changing. But in this Babylonian empire where the Nebuchadnezzars were in charge, things were very um, autocratic in that, that form of leadership, as we're going to see today. Let me start by whetting your appetite a little bit and try to see if we can get our minds around one of the things that we're going to be facing as we see these people, including Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the kind of choice they had to make. This is a young man named Brian Sternberg. Brian reached a pinnacle of his athletic career in 1963. He was a track and field specialist and his real specialty was pole vaulting. He was a freshman in 1963, a freshman in college in Washington State. Can you imagine how young you were when you were a freshman? I mean, I, I was a kid <laughs> and yet this kid was actually making records in pole vaulting at that year. He achieved so much at such a young age. He shocked the sports world, in fact, at the 1963 NCAA Outdoor Track and Field Championships held at the University Stadium in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Well, he uh, was reaching to new heights, literally and in the record book, so to speak, that specific year, because in six weeks time, he kept getting better and better and better and he set three world records in six weeks time, the highest at 16 feet, eight inches. Now, previous to that, before 1963, no college athlete had cleared the seemingly impossible 16 foot mark in pole vault. The sport was changing slightly because they were starting to use fiberglass poles instead of the old aluminum or the really heavy old steel poles. And so that was starting to give them an edge because you know how they would flex and they were learning to time it just right and use the spring from that pole to launch them up and over that bar. And Brian just seemed to have a feel for that. He knew where he was at any given time, even in midair. And one of the reasons he could do that is because he was a trampoline artist as well. Some of the gymnastics helped him develop the kind of muscles that he needed to be a really good pole vaulter. And one of the things he did was to work out on trampoline. Part of what that did was to give him that sense of timing so that when he was at his apex and he needed to throw his arms at just the right time so he could twist his body, he could feel all that. And he was doing a particular trick, they call him on a trampoline one time. And uh, this was just less than a month after he had set that record of 16 feet, eight inches. And it was a double back with a half twist. He had done it many times before. It is a difficult trick to be sure, 
But he said in an interview later that there was something that just happens sometimes when you leave the trampoline and you start up into the air that you just have that sense of panic because you feel like something is not quite right and you tend to lose all sense of orientation. And that was one of these cases. So he thought that he was going to come down on his hands and knees like he had so many other times before. But instead, he landed on his neck. He heard a terrible snap. And he watched his arms and legs still attached to his torso, but bouncing up and down wildly without any control. He had broken his neck. And he tried to scream, but he couldn't get much sound out because it was affecting the nerves that had been severed were affecting his lungs as well. And he found that he was just sort of trapped inside this lifeless body. Well, he lived amazingly almost 50 more years after that as a quadriplegic. What an amazing story. But he had to start wrestling with something else, not just wrestling with his physical capabilities or disabilities in this case, but he started wrestling with his faith. He had met a young lady who had led him to Christ and he had made a decision for Christ and was really placing his trust, leaning fully on Jesus Christ at the time of his accident. But there were some well-meaning Christians who heard him after he had said some things in a magazine article about how regardless of whether you are healed or not, he can still trust Christ. You can still trust God. Some of these well-meaning Christians were saying, yeah, but Brian, God loves you so much that he wants you to be completely healed. And so I think it's all or nothing. You need to pray. And if you have enough faith, he'll heal you. You'll walk again. He'll heal you and you'll walk right out of that wheelchair. So that started working on Brian in his mind. And what he realized later was that he was really trying to put his faith in faith rather than putting his faith in God. Because putting his faith in God would mean that regardless of the outcome, just as Steve was mentioning in a couple of the things prefacing today's message, these guys that were facing King Nebuchadnezzar, they realized that for them to say, okay, but even if we're not spared, even if we are burned up in this furnace, as we're going to see in this story, we, we still serve the one and only true God. And we're not going to fall down and worship any other graven image or idol. So in trying to come up with that faith, Brian said, he wrestled through a period of that uh, shortly after his accident, that portion of his life, when he was saying, I started wondering, do I not have enough faith? Is it me? Is it my lack of faith that God's not healing me? And then he started thinking, well, maybe God's failing me. Maybe I have enough faith, but maybe there isn't a God. Maybe God's failing me. He's letting me down for some reason. Maybe I'm suffering for some reason. Maybe he's punishing me. All these crazy things started going through Brian's mind. And he realized that that was not something he could live with for very much longer because he had lost his peace of mind. Fortunately, he regained that sense of orientation based on his trust in God after that. In fact, at a Fellowship of Christian Athletes conference, five years after his trampoline accident, Brian shared his story with nearly a thousand people. The hall was darkened. A movie screen showed this six foot three inch muscled athlete breaking the world record. And then the lights came up again and a big wrestler friend of his carried Brian up onto the stage and Brian looked like a sack of potatoes. His arms had no strength of their own, and so they just hung lifeless and limp. His legs, same thing. They propped him up around a bunch of pillows so he wouldn't tip over while he was giving his testimony. 
And then he started telling them some of the things that were important to him. And he did recount some of the successes in that career, that short-lived career, when he was starting to feel like he was really becoming one with the pole and he was setting new records and he could just feel that exhilaration knowing that God had made him in such a way that he could do things that many other people couldn't. And he just felt such exhilaration in being able to fly over that pole. And then he got to the main point of his talk and he said, I never felt like a real winner until I put God in the very center of my life. Brian shared the story about how he came to know Jesus Christ, and he shared about the intense emotional pain he had struggled with after this vibrant young athlete had become a quadriplegic. But then he talked about really placing his faith in God and how he had closed his eyes and said a simple prayer deep from within his own heart, committing his life to Jesus. And he said that putting Christ first was the best thing he'd ever done with his life. Brian spent the rest of his life nearly 50 additional years after his accident, telling people how people can have this same kind of faith because God offers it freely. And that even when we stand before the fire, so to speak, when we're having a fiery trial of our own, and the Lord knows we've been through some trials in this last year, many of you all have. But regardless of the outcome, he said, you can trust the God who is sovereign through it all because even if he doesn't answer in the way we would like him to answer our prayers, we can still trust him because he loves us so much that he would create a way for us to be perfectly whole and perfectly healthy and without the influence of sin forever, thanks to Jesus Christ. Pretty incredible story. And it mirrors exactly what we're going to see in the kind of faith in these three Israelites, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in today's story in Daniel 3. They were putting faith in God, not faith in faith. So we're going to look here in this chapter about how this kind of faith in a sovereign God enables us to stand firm even when we're feeling the heat, so to speak, because of an earthly trial. Remember last week when I said that King Nebuchadnezzar's worship of God was going to be short-lived? Only took one chapter. <laughs> so yes, it was very short-lived. And so now we get to see that the same God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego gets to be exalted once again, but it happens because of an earthly king whose ego was huge and whose pride was going to become his downfall, as we'll see next week. Well, chapter three begins with a king dedicating a nine-story statue of gold. Whoa. So let's look at that together. If you have a Bible with you handy, Turn to Daniel chapter 3, and you can kind of follow along. I like the accessibility of language, the contemporariness of the New Living Translation, so that's what I'm reading from today. It may sound a little bit different if you're reading from one of the other translations there. I'll start with the very beginning of chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And then he sent messages to the high officers, officials, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials. That means basically anybody with any kind of governmental influence, any kind of a job that was in leadership in Babylon at the time, to the dedication of the statue he had set up. So all these officials came and stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And we're thinking, whoa. Why such a huge statue? Well, for one thing, if you have watched any of the documentaries 
about Egypt or Persia or the Middle East, uh, you would know that that was kind of a thing. Kings used to love to try to commemorate their own abilities and powers. And so they would try to outdo the last king by doing something magnificent and huge in the way of not only their statues, but also their buildings. But there are a couple of different things that might factor into why King Nebuchadnezzar decided to have this specific statue. For one, there might have been a factor in Daniel's interpretation of the king's dream, which took place way back at the beginning as we started to see that the king couldn't find any of his astrologers or the Chaldeans or the magicians or the soothsayers or any of the diviners to be able to tell him what the dream was and what it meant. But Daniel was given that gift by God to be able to not only know the dream, he knew that supernaturally because God showed him exactly the details of that dream, but also how to interpret that. And the king was very impressed with that. But one of the things about that dream was that Daniel said, because God has allowed you power, King Nebuchadnezzar, you are that first of the four kingdoms that he was talking about in the dream, and you are the head of gold. Because remember, there was the gold, silver, bronze, and then finally the steel that was also mixed with baked clay as the feet, and that's why it would break later. Now, I don't much think that this was a huge influence on King Nebuchadnezzar, and the reason is that in that dream, we can see that that statue was going to get crumbled to bits. So I'm not sure that he would have been leaning in that direction. I think there's a better clue for us, probably in Daniel chapter 6, which seems to make more sense to me anyway. There were some jealous leaders. Some of the people that had been in these positions got passed over because Daniel's rise to success was so quick. He got promoted to be in charge of all the wise men in Babylon at the time, which meant that a lot of these other people were probably thinking, hey, I've got seniority. I've been serving this king for years. And then this young upstart, who's not even one of our own, he's an exile from Israel. How come he puts him in charge of us? So they were jealous. It happens. <laughs> and so we're going to understand that these guys were so upset and they were looking for some ways to try to have Daniel and his friends put down and kicked down a notch. But they couldn't. They couldn't find anything against them because Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were so upright in the ways that they were conducting themselves that these guys couldn't find anything against them. So they thought, okay, the only way we're going to be able to do that is to have some sort of a law. We're going to convince the, the king to pass a law that we know these guys from Israel won't be able to obey because it will contradict the laws that they're trying to follow from their God. And that's exactly what they did. So I think that's the real reason why King Nebuchadnezzar uh, had this huge 90 foot tall statue erected. Personal opinion, uh, you can look into it for yourself and see if you come to a different conclusion, but that certainly makes sense to me. So then we have this statue and a concert. This was huge. The plain of Dura was a big flat spot in a desert, and you could clearly have seen this 90-foot-tall statue from just about anywhere on that flat space. And then they were going to bring in this huge marching band, so to speak. So let's pick it up at verse 4. Then a herald shouted, People of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and other musical instruments, bow down to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Yowza. What a scene. I mean, we're talking about a huge thronging crowd here, and it would have 
grown very, very quiet as they were listening to see what was going on. And then suddenly this huge band, this cacophony of sound that must have been really something for them to hear all that. And then we see They launched into some music and just about everybody fell down except everybody except Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So at the sound of the musical instruments, all the people, whatever their race or nation or language, all that is except these three, bowed to the ground and worshiped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. All that is, and the reason I say all except these three is because we see in verse 12, these three stood out like sore thumbs somewhere in that crowd. It would have been easy to see them because they were literally head and shoulders, or even more, standing out above everybody else who had bowed down. Maybe they said something like, you know, we're really not into big band music. Um, it's a little too hot for our taste. Maybe they said, we're more into cool jazz. Okay, maybe they didn't say that. That's my own imagination going into overtime. I apologize for that. But they would have definitely known these words from Exodus. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall now or you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. You shall not bow down to these things. They knew that. And so they knew that here was a great test. There are certain lines that they knew they were not, were not going to step over. Earlier, when we started this series, we found out that they were learning some of the literature of Babylon, of Persia, the Chaldean languages, all these things that they were learning, as long as they wouldn't step over a line and do something that they knew was, was completely contrary to what they had been brought up in terms of their worship practices. And this was one of those lines. Certain things in the Christian life, we can say, you know, that's not causing me to step over a line because I can still exalt Christ and I can still live for him. But there are certain things that if we're asked to do them, we can say, no, the Bible is very clear on that. I'm not doing that. That was kind of the case with them. Well, they got noticed. You'd better believe they got noticed. I mean, that was the whole idea. That, that was the purpose of the statue being erected and this command because these guys who were so jealous, the leaders, they wanted to be able to catch these guys in the act of defying the king, and that's precisely what happened. Let me pick it up at verse 8. But some of the astrologers went to the king. That would be the Chaldeans, which were the diviners. They were looking at the different shapes of where the stars were in order to figure out what the gods were saying, as we looked at earlier. These jealous leaders were counting on this stuff, and they said to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, long live, live the king. You issued a decree requiring all the people to bow down and worship the gold statue when they hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and other musical instruments. That decree also states that those who refuse to obey must be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some, some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to be specific, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon. They pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you have set up. Notice how they keep turning it back to, they're defying you, O king. Because for the king, in his mind, he was so egotistical 
that for them to bow down and worship that statue, some believe that it may have actually even been a replica of himself, a gigantic effigy of the king, so that to bow down and worship the statue was the same as if they were bow bowing down in allegiance and loyalty to the king himself. So let me give you a multiple choice, a very simple multiple choice question here and see if you can get this one right. Just two to choose from. I'm gonna make it real easy, okay? Which of the following two responses represent how the king responded when he got this news from the Chaldeans? Number one, you tattletales, mind your own business. These are Israelites, so of course they won't bow down to an idol, we knew that. They're loyal to their God. So don't bother me. I've got more important things to do in running this whole region. Or number two, did he say, he flew into a rage and ordered the guards to arrest Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and bring them back so he could deal with them in person. Now, if you chose option number two, you're correct. Hey, give yourself a high five. All right. Nebuchadnezzar took a very dim view about these three guys not bowing down to worship his statue, his idol. And so let's pick it up at verse 13 now. Then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. And when they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue that I have set up? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what God will rescue you from my power? Can you hear the pride? Can you hear the ego? <laughs> Who will rescue you from my power? Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. He needs to read ahead to chapter four. Mm -hmm. This is a good time in the story for us to ask. I wonder if those three boys were standing there offered a second chance, and if they were wrestling at all with some rationalizations that we might come up with today. I have a feeling that some of us might take a little longer to respond than they took. Some people might say, ah, you know, we need to live to fight another day, because if we're killed, there won't be any other opportunity for us to influence this culture or the people around us. So um, we'll just have to lose this one battle, but we'll win the war. That could be one thing that some rationalizers could do. Sometimes our rationalization gland gets really inflamed. Or there may be some that would say, you know, our God is a God of forgiveness. So if we go ahead and bow down to the idol just this once, we know that he will forgive us. Better to get forgiveness than permission. Or maybe there were some who said, you know, it's really what's on the inside that counts. It's the thought that counts. And they could even twist scripture if they had that scripture to twist. And if they could say, you know, man looks at the outside, but God sees the heart. And so we're gonna actually be kneeling on the outside, but in our hearts, we'll be standing proud and God will know that. Rationalization. They didn't seem to take much time. Now, this particular passage doesn't say how long it took before they answered the king, but I suspect it was pretty quick because I think they had taken some of their cues from Daniel in the earlier time when Daniel stood readily and quickly for doing the right thing. And so I think they were taking courage from him and saying, no, we, we serve God. We serve Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, the, the God of the chosen people. And so we don't have to defend him. We don't have to do anything except to just obey 
and we can trust him no matter what. Who says this kind of thing anyway? I mean, who says, wow, even if he doesn't, I, I don't know. Well, Jesus says that kind of stuff. And Jesus was telling his disciples to do something that seemed impossible to them at the time, thinking ahead into the New Testament, of course. Remember when Jesus was telling his disciples, you know, you're supposed to forgive people, not three times like they might have said back when they grew up. He said, what about seven times? What if somebody sins against you seven times, even if it's in the same day, you should still forgive them. And you know what the disciples' response was? It was, wow, show us how to increase our faith, Lord. It's gonna take a lot of faith to be able to forgive somebody that much. That's the kind of faith that requires obedience. And when we do the right thing, even though it's tough, that's the kind of faith that God honors. And so we're gonna pick it up in verse 16 of Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond. This is what happens after they had thought through, even if it was a split second, are we gonna rationalize or are we gonna just answer the king? And it looks to me like they answered right away. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, there's that phrase again, but even if not, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. It's pretty clear. These three didn't seem to hesitate, and they said, God is able, but even if he doesn't, we still serve him, and we value him above all others. Just last Thursday, I discovered a new song as I was looking through for some songs that had to do with this particular topic. And I love the lyrics to this particular song. It's by Jordan St. Cyr, Living Out the Victory. It's in the song called Fires. Listen to some of these lyrics. I remember how you told me I can trust you completely. So why am I doubting when you proved that you would fight for me? You've walked me through fires, pulled me from flames. If you're in this with me, I won't be afraid. When the smoke billows higher, oh, and higher, and it feels like I can barely breathe, I'll walk through these fires because you're walking with me. I'm changed by your mercy, covered by your peace. I'm living out the victory. Doesn't mean I won't feel the heat. Isn't that good? I kind of thought about Brian Sternberg and what he was feeling as he went through that fiery trial of his own when he became a paraplegic. Doesn't mean he wouldn't feel the heat. It didn't mean that he wasn't going to struggle. I'm sure he struggled often with the rest of his life. And yet he found the peace of mind that comes by serving the one true God and knowing that his real purpose was to exalt God and to reflect his glory and that forever he was going to live and eventually he was going to live completely whole once and for all time because when he had his translation from this earth to the next, his commencement exercise, so to speak, his resurrection, which is promised to everybody who believes in God and trusts in Jesus Christ, then he was going to be completely healed forever. Well, let me tell you, these three Jewish lads were about to feel the heat. 
Nebuchadnezzar was so furious, it says in verse 19, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. He commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. Now that very often was a euphemism. It was a, an expression that meant more hot than it had ever been heated before. It was the perfect number of seven. So it means perfectly hot, white hot with heat. And then he ordered some of the strongest men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to throw them into the blazing furnace. They tied them up and threw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, turbans, robes, and other garments. You'd expect that to be fairly flammable, would you not? And because the king, in his anger, had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers as they threw the three men in. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, fell into the roaring flames. And now, in most situations, we would expect the screen to fade to black, the sad music to come on, and roll the credits. The end. Game over. That wasn't the case here. Incredible. They were tied up. They were fully clothed. They were throwing, thrown into these flames so hot that the soldiers who put them in there were actually killed. But that's not the end of this story. Who says that kind of thing? I know God is able, but if not, well, Jesus said it. He said it in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before his arrest, on his knees, face in the dust, praying from a broken heart, and he's saying, oh, my father, if it is possible, please let this cup of suffering pass from me. But if not, your will is more important than my will. So if it's not possible for you to let this cup pass from me, I'll go through the fire. That was the same attitude. And it was almost as though this kind of obedience from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is a foreshadowing of something that Jesus lived out for us, making it possible for us to be reconciled with the Holy God because of what he did for us on the cross. Also, a faith-filled dad right here locally in Michigan displayed this kind of faith. I've shared this story about three or four times in the last few years at Living Water, and it still brings me to tears thinking about it. I was serving on staff at a church in Ann Arbor right out of seminary. This was in the 80s, late 80s. And uh, Paul Calmes, my pastor, was called in to minister to a family. He said, why don't you come with me? There was a father who was there with his adult son. The father was in his late 50s. The son was in his late 20s. The son had Down syndrome. And he was supposed to have a simple repair of a vertebrae in his neck that was pinching a nerve and creating a lot of pain. It should have been a fairly straightforward surgery. We prayed with the family just before they took this young man into surgery. And then he said, you don't have to wait around. You can go ahead and just leave and do whatever you need to do. And if we have anything else, uh, we can call you back. And we said, that's fine. So we went, we got called late that night, the same day as the surgery to go back up to the hospital. Somehow there was a complication. We don't know what the complication was or where it came from. It seems that part of that may have been caused by just sheer fear on the part of this Down syndrome young man who didn't understand what they were doing to him. They had to put his head in one of those halos with screws going into his skull to hold him stiff. And he woke up and just panicked. And he was so panicked that his heart raced and things started to go south. 
And the doctors who were beside themselves trying to do everything they could, couldn't figure out how to save this young man's life. And so this dad called us in and said, can you pray? And as we prayed, we said, God, your will be done because you know what's best for this young man. And you love him more than anybody, which is hard to understand, but your will be done above all else. And then the father looked at us pleadingly and said, did you get anything from the Holy Spirit? Did he, did he give you any indication about what the answer might be? And Paul and I had to be honest and say, no, I'm sorry. He, he hasn't revealed anything to us about a healing or, or anything. But we know that we can trust God. And he said, I know that. I know that. And it was just a short time later that this young man went to heaven. Now, this man and his wife had cared for that young man. He was their life. They dedicated themselves to this young man. So it was a devastating loss. And yet I witnessed, Paul and I witnessed this guy demonstrate such faith to the physician who came into a tiny room, a consultation room, to tell them in clinical terms what he think happened. He says, this is what I think happened to your son. And then he described physiologically what went on, which caused his death. And then he, he said to the father, are you okay? And the father with such rock solid faith said, oh yes, we're gonna grieve terribly, obviously. I mean, of course we're gonna grieve, but God has taken the sting of death away for us because we know where our son is right now. He's in heaven. And we know we're gonna see him again. And when we do see him, he's gonna be completely healed and completely whole. We know that for a fact because we know Jesus and we know that he knew Jesus. And then the doctor who was kind of befuddled by that just didn't know quite what to say. And this dad who was not gonna pass up a good opportunity said, doc, do you know this kind of Jesus? Do you know the Jesus we've described? And the doctor was very diplomatic. He said, well, I know of God, and I know of a Jesus Christ, but I don't know the Jesus that you're describing, not the way you're describing him, at least. He said, but listening to you and seeing how you're going through this together, it's clear to me that you have a great faith. And I thought, well, that was diplomatic, and we appreciated that, but the man still wasn't going to let that go. And he said, oh, but Doc, you can know him because he's knowable. God wants you to know this Jesus. He wants you to have that kind of faith because God's real and he's revealing himself to us constantly. I hope that one day you will know him the way we do because we'd love to see you in heaven too. And that doctor left kind of shaking his head in wonder. And Paul and I did too. We went out for coffee afterwards to debrief that situation and we couldn't stop talking about the tremendous faith of this father. It was just fabulous. And I thought, this is a dad who understands what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understood when they said, but if not. Let's pick it up at verse 24. Nebuchadnezzar saw that kind of, but if not sort of faith too. But suddenly Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, uh, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Uh, yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Well, look, he shouted again. I see four men, unbound, walking around in the fire, unharmed. And the fourth looks like a god. And in many translations, it says, like a son of the gods. And then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego servants of the most high God, 
come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. And then the high officers, officials, governors, and advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their heads was singed and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell like smoke. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I make this decree. He was good at making decrees. <laughs> he makes another one right here. If any people, whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb, and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. There is no other God who can rescue like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to even higher positions in the province of Babylon. <laughs> you know what struck me in this? I know this is funny, but this is the way I think sometimes. Have you ever been out to a, a campfire? I saw a picture from one of you, and you were out at a campfire, first one of the season. And you know when you get in and you've been out in, around that fire for two or three hours, and you kind of think, ooh, wow, I need to put this shirt in the laundry. It smells like smoke. I mean, smoke really gets into your clothing. You can smell it for a long time. I, I thought it was great that it wanted to make sure that it was crystal clear. Yeah, they, they weren't singed. Their clothing didn't catch on fire, but they didn't even smell like smoke. <laughs> that was huge to me, I thought. Yes, trying to paint the picture for us that they were not touched in any way. It was like they were completely surrounded by protection of some sort, and they knew where that protection came from. Well, here's the thing. For those of us who are trying to learn how to place our faith in a loving God, he answers our prayers in different ways. Sometimes he will answer by helping us escape from the fire. We won't have to go through it at all. He'll take us around the trouble. Sometimes, as we see in this particular case, he shows up, whether it was an angel of God or some suspect maybe it was Jesus Christ in the form of an angel right there with them. I mean, he's God. He could manifest himself, I suppose, in any way that we think, but somehow there was a supernatural intervention. We know that much for sure. Sometimes he shows up and protects us through the fire. He allows us to go through the trouble, through the trial, but he's there with us. And so we still have the peace of mind and he still protects us. And we also have abundant evidence though, that sometimes he doesn't answer our prayer the way we would like, and it becomes a permanent healing. Like that Down syndrome young man, he was healed permanently. It was great for him. He woke up in heaven. What a great thing. No more Down syndrome, no more neck pain. He was healed permanently. So for those, those of us on this side of eternity, it gets hard because we miss our loved ones. When somebody passes away, we would long for God to be able to heal them and keep them around for a time. But as we are prone to do, we tend to cling to people longer than we ought because we forget that we're made for eternity. We're not made temporarily for this earth. We were made for something much longer than that. That's what we see in Hebrews. We see that passage all about faith and the hall of fame of faith. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that many of these early believers were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They wouldn't recant of their faith. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. 
because they knew that there was something better for them. And the writer of Hebrews in that same passage says, the earth wasn't good enough for them in a sense. That's my paraphrase of it. It means that they were too good to stand around here because of their faith and God gave them something so much better. And because they stood firm in their faith, God gave them eternity and they were completely healed and completely whole. Sometimes we're taken out of it, sometimes we're taken through it, and sometimes the answer is, I'm gonna go ahead and take you home, but I'm gonna heal you permanently. So is it possible that a loving God would choose on purpose to allow his faithful followers to suffer through a fiery trial? Would he do that? Would a God love us so much that he would say, I love you, and I'm going to allow you to go through this suffering or this pain or this loss or this trial? I would say yes, absolutely. We see it all through scripture, and I've seen abundant evidence with my own eyes from trustworthy sources, real followers of God who have been allowed to go through some difficult things on earth. But the reason they can do that is because God shows us how much he loves us by Jesus Christ, who also suffered. He didn't take him out of that suffering. He allowed him to go through that suffering so that something so much better could result. He allowed Jesus Christ on purpose to die, to pay the penalty of sin, which we could never pay because he was a holy God, God who became human, gave himself up freely for our benefit, was resurrected, conquering death for all time, so that we could also have a resurrection, and now we too can trust him. So that even though we know we're gonna to have to go through some trials on this earth, we'll have something so much better to look forward to in eternity. So yes, definitely we can trust him. We can trust him no matter what. And I hope and pray that you will. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is a tough passage for many because it forces us to reckon with some of the trials in our lives. And I pray that we'll gain confidence and encouragement from the lives of these faith-filled Israelites, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who said, yes, we know that God is able, but even if he doesn't carry us through this trial, we're still gonna serve him only because we know that we're created for him and for eternity. I pray that we'll gain confidence and courage and that if there's anybody who would like to place their trust in you, they can take courage from this passage and say, oh, you can absolutely count on God to be that kind of loving God. And he will be rock solid for you even through your trials. And he'll give you something to look forward to even after this life. I pray that they will trust you. And I thank you for giving us these wonderful lessons through amazing faith-filled people in your word because it helps us navigate every day of our lives when we're faced with things and we can gain perspective, this eternal heavenly perspective, to help us navigate even the trials that we go through. And I pray for encouragement to fall on everybody who's listening today and that they will feel emboldened to keep trusting you and be faith-filled in themselves because of your wonderful goodness to us. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.